When is stenting the best solution to carotid artery disease? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Robert Beasley, Director of Vascular and Interventional Radiology at Mount Sinai Medical Center in Miami Beach, Florida. Welcome, Dr. Beasley. Thank you, Mark, for having me. Today we are discussing carotid stenting. We know that arteriosclerosis of the carotid arteries is a common thing that we see. How does this usually present itself in patients? A lot of the times in the patients, it's an asymptomatic process, as you know, and the, the patients don't really know that they have this disease until they visit their primary physician, and the physician notices a brewing. And then that'll lead you off to think that, you know, what's causing this, and then perform an ultrasound, and you can see what you have. If you're symptomatic, then, you know, you may have a TIA, or you may have a problem with your vision, or you may have some weakness in one of your hands or your feet, or uh, some type of uh, paresthesia or, or something like that. That's usually the way we see these things present. So if a physician hears a brewery in an otherwise asymptomatic patient, what would you suggest as the first test they get? First test should be an ultrasound of the carotid arteries. And what does that really show you? Ultrasound will show you the blockage in real time. It'll also show you, and you can estimate a degree of stenosis, and it will also uh, demonstrate Doppler signals and velocities, which uh, can also, taken together, lead you to believe that there may be a significant stenosis or not. Now, when you say real time, what do you really mean by that? As the technician is looking at the carotid artery, you're able to see in real time the flow of the blood through the blockage, and you're able to see at that moment the degree of stenosis or what you can estimate as a degree of stenosis uh, in a blockage. You're also able to see other characteristics such as calcification. Why is that different than not doing it in real time? Not doing it in real time, you don't get the field, you don't get the information of the degree of stenosis as eloquently as as if you're watching it on a tape as they're doing it. Now, carotid disease many years ago was always under the purview of the vascular surgeons doing carotid endarterectomies, patches, things like that. When did it become a radiologic and angiographic intervention? Carotid stenting has probably been done since the mid to early 90s. Some institutions here in the United States uh, were doing it, and some institutions over in Europe were doing it. And these were done by interventional cardiologists and interventional radiologists initially. Now uh, it's pretty much divided up between vascular surgeons who are developing their inter- interventional skills at this time, and uh, as well as the interventional cardiologists and radiologists. Now, if you see on ultrasound, let's say two scenarios, one strict stenosis and the other an ulcerated plaque. Now, which one would be appropriate for intervention from your perspective? Well, I think either one. The ulcerated plaque may would have an increased risk of having an embolization, but with the new distal protection devices that we have now, I think that's uh, equalized the treatment of both of these lesions, especially in a symptomatic patient that has an ulcerated plaque. I mean, you need to treat that either, you know, open or with the percutaneous stent approach. The patients also will allow you to determine the best treatment modality. If you have a high-risk patient for surgery, then I think right now the treatment of choice is carotid stenting with distal protection. 
How do you do distal protection? Distal protection device is either uh, a little umbrella or a little collection device that is placed through the stenosis and the internal carotid artery or at the uh, ostium of the internal carotid artery and is advanced up into the cervical portion of the internal carotid artery where it is then deployed. And once it's opened up, then there's a basket that sits there that will collect any debris larger than a couple of microns. Obviously, you have to have enough uh, opening so that you can let the blood cells go through and all the products but, uh, you know, small enough to catch any uh, large debris that might be knocked off during the uh, angioplasty or stenting procedure. So making it clear, there is continued blood flow. On all of the FDA-approved devices that are commercially available uh, now, there is continual blood flow without occlusion. There are some occlusive balloon devices which are still in FDA trials, which are occlusive devices, but these are not currently on the market. So then that really obviates the concern if you have contralateral significant stenosis in doing this procedure. That is correct. And do you do this procedure under local anesthesia or with sedation? I do it under local anesthesia, and I do not use sedation. I know of other cardiologists, surgeons, and radiologists that do it under general anesthesia. Some do it with some component of conscious sedation, so there is no set way to do it out there right now. I would prefer to know, though, if the patient does have any type of neurological event sooner than later about this. Uh, So that's why I do it with no sedation. If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, professor of surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and we are speaking with Dr. Robert Beasley, director of vascular and interventional radiology at Mount Sinai Medical Center in Miami Beach, Florida. Today we are discussing carotid stenting. Dr. Beasley, when do you decide to operate on a patient and do a carotid endarterectomy or interventionally treat them in your laboratory? There are certain guidelines that I go by, and I think most folks that are treating out there go by. If the patient has had prior neck surgery or radiation, then the patient would be a good candidate for carotid stenting. If the patient has a significant coronary artery disease uh, with angina class 3 or 4 or has significant uh, COPD, then I think the patient is a good candidate for carotid stenting. Patients that, uh, again, would be higher risk for surgery are good candidates. Now, I don't believe patients that are young are good candidates for carotid stenting at this point. And by young, I mean, you know, 55, 65 in that area. Why is that, sir? We just don't have the long-term data on the stenting of carotid arteries. It looks like it's going to act like iliac arteries. In other words, the degree of instant restenosis so far is 1% to 2%, and we're talking about 3 to 5 years, which is uh, excellent compared to the carotid artery and arterectomy reblockage of anywhere from 4 to 6% after a couple, two or three years. I think it's going to be comparable at least, but we just don't know. I, I would hate to put in a carotid uh, stent in the 60-year-old and then find out that the 20-year data shows a significant incidence of instant restenosis. So that's why I don't do it yet. Once there's a stent in the carotid, can you do your procedure or even put in a second stent? Yes, you can. Several of my patients, one or two in particular, have had two stents placed because of the length of the lesion, 
and one of these patients came back because of the stent separation. In other words, I did not cover the stents as adequately, I think, as it might have been otherwise. So during the movement of the neck, these two stents kind of separated and produced a severe stenosis. So the way to treat this would be to bring the patient back and put a third stent in between the area of separation, which we did under distal protection, and the patient had an excellent result. So if you get a patient, let's say in their 50s, who is otherwise healthy and has a significant lesion on ultrasound in their carotids, but they could easily tolerate general anesthesia, you would not approach this straight away with a endovascular procedure like a laser? I would not do a laser on carotid stenting at all. As far as a stent goes, I would not do that uh, at this point in an otherwise healthy patient, unless the patient absolutely positively said, I do not want surgery, I want a stent. And I've had one or two patients that have presented that scenario with me, and they were anywhere from 55, 60, 65 years old. But, you know, that's after having a long discussion with them about the fact that we don't have long-term data on this and after letting them fully well understand what they're getting into. It's very interesting. You mentioned before that you do this under local anesthesia to see if there are any neurologic problems. Have you ever encountered someone who has had neurologic problems while you're doing the procedure? Yes. Unfortunately, there have been some problems related to aphasia, and that was expressive aphasia that occurred once about five or six years ago. We were involved in a trial, and uh, I think that it was probably related to the dye that we were using. I think we were using a uh, very concentrated form of iodine-based contrast media, and I think that was related to that because it wasn't a focal neurological deficit. It was just a general overall problem. And then the other problems that we've had, we've had some problems associated, again, I think it's related to the contrast thickness was with some cerebral edema. And again, these were not focal defects. We haven't had that many focal defects that presented right away. So we haven't had a lot of problems uh, with focal defects. And in your laboratory, let's say a patient has bilateral significant disease. How do you approach that? I treat the lesion that's the most severe first. And we usually try to make sure that our time, from time of deployment until the time of recapture of the distal protection device is uh, anywhere from 8 to 10 minutes or less. And that's what we strive for. That's why when I work up my patients for carotid stenting, I always perform a diagnostic carotid examination uh, with angiography, no matter if they have a CTA or an MRA. And that way, I've been there before. I know my way up into the carotid artery. I know how long it's going to take me. I know what catheter I'm going to use. And then I come back either a day or two later or a week or two later, and we do the stent. So if I understand you correctly, you do an angiogram on every patient you do this. I do an angiogram on every patient that I do a carotid stenting on. Have there ever been any surprises by doing that careful approach? Absolutely. You see surprises all the time. Calcification is your enemy. Tortuosity is your enemy. The patients that I evaluate for carotid stenting that are sent to me, at least 25 to 30% of these patients, uh, I refer to surgery because of uh, either heavily calcified plaque or tortuosity of the, the vasculature, or for other reasons, such as we talked about earlier, age. Well, to be the devil's advocate, there's a certain morbidity in doing angiography. Why couldn't you have all of the supplies available at the time to deal with the situation straight away? 
Well, you possibly could. It's just the way I have been treating and working my patients, and I have a certain comfort zone with that approach. Now, I am a, a radiologist, so I do have proficiency in reading CTAs and MRAs, but a lot of times you just don't get a feel for the aorta or a feel for the carotid arteries as they as they take off. I don't know, maybe I'm a little bit old school, but I definitely, before proceeding, like to kind of sit back and look at everything in a relaxed setting before then proceeding to do the stenting. Now, have I ever done the stenting the same time? Yes, I have on certain occasions where folks have come from out of the country or folks have come from out of town and they want to get this done today and go home or something. We've accommodated that, but by and large, 95% of the time, I do this step-by-step approach. I want to thank Dr. Robert Beasley, who has been our guest. We have been discussing carotid stenting. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.